0: Hey, Hello and welcome to the old and in the way comedy podcast with Bob and Mark where we fight ageism one bad joke at a time. Reluctantly, we had to learn the hard way that denial and repression oftentimes are not enough to hold back the tides of reality before we get our tickets punched. So our mission is clear and compelling. We will pull back the veil on aging and reveal much of what's real and absurd with growing old. Political correctness be damned. And yes, of course, there will be malarkey. But before we get started, we'd like to thank our fictitious sponsor, Smart Again, a brain supplement for their continued support. Three, two, one, remember remembering? Smart Again is a brain supplement that will have you wondering in no time how you got to be so damn smart again. Smart Again is made from all natural ingredients that will reverse your cognitive decline, heighten your mental acuity in just a few days. When I first heard about Smart again, I didn't believe it. But after a few days of taking Smart again, I've been able to find my car in the parking lot. I've stopped yelling at the neighbor's kids. And more times than not, when I walk into a room, I know why I'm there. It's an amazing product and cannot be found at fine stores everywhere And ladies and gentlemen, showtime. And our special guest today is Mark Karan.
1: Karen.
2: Karen, yeah. (laughs) Karen, thank you. Sorry. No worries.
1: That Uh, was was the comedy part. (laughs) Yeah,
0: we've been working on that line for about a week, but all right.
1: (laughs) Showtime. Great. Well, thank thank you, Mark. Thank you for... uh, for agreeing to this and uh and boy i looked at your your wikipedia listing and it's more impressive than than even i thought and i thought it would be amazing Ah. uh so uh you're now you're you're doing your first thing you should probably get to do is plug your next gig you've got a mark karen's buds gig coming up
2: uh actually it just happened it was last thursday at the sweetwater Ah. and loads of fun but uh yeah that's in the rear view now
1: okay and are you still doing Jeremiah Puddle
2: Duck at all? You know, not not under that name, much much in the way that uh, The Grateful Dead stopped being The Grateful Dead when Jerry went away. Oh. Uh, you know, Puddle Duck was one of those bands that's an actual band that, you know, the, the, the it matters who's on bass and it matters who's on drums, you know, not just plug and play. Um, so when that stopped being an option, you know, all those guys live in Southern California i, I kind of had to put that to bed but i when i do mark karen's buds it's the same ethic you know it's it's uh my tunes and americana tunes but done with the uh, with the sensibilities of the grateful dead where we can stretch things out and have a little fun with them
1: Got it. okay well that that that, that gets me to, to one of the topics i wanted to talk about you're one of the most uh eminent practitioners of the, the grateful dead uh and related songbook uh and uh I, I notice as the as, as the dead, I guess, are doing their last hurrah uh, or whatever whatever it's now called with Lesh. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing I'm noticing is uh, when I look at the listings uh, in at least around here and probably elsewhere, it's almost all tribute bands and and cover bands. It, it seems like it's harder to to go hear original bands and. Uh, now there's not not only a whole lot of people playing the dead songbook, but there's Fleetwood Mask and uh, uh, Petty Theft and and you know yep. tributes to everybody. Um, it, it used to be I think you had to have permission or there was a, a trademark issues, but that doesn't seem to be a thing anymore. Uh, I was wondering if, if wondering if, if, why you think that's so prevalent and. And what do you think it, it means, if anything, for music? I know it, it keeps alive the old guys, but does it give room for new guys?
2: Well, I, frankly, it doesn't really give a lot of room for the old guys either. Um, I've talked to a bunch of the people that both book the clubs or book the bands into the clubs. And what I most often hear is that the only acts they can really count on, uh, you know, performing in terms of butts in the seats uh, are the legacy acts that have been around for a while and have have big deal followings already uh, or tribute acts uh, and the other thing I've encountered is that a whole lot of my musician friends there's no real uh, motivation or desire to necessarily write and create original music they're happy to be out doing co- I'm not I'm an old fart I come from the era when you know the idea what was to listen to the grateful dead and be influenced or whoever and uh and take those influences and come up with your thing that was different you know and 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 that's how you had new music in the world and that's what kept yeah. everything alive and fresh and natural there still,
0: evolution
2: yeah yeah and there are still people doing that but uh the ability to to monetize that in any kind of effective way a lot of that kind of thing, the opportunity to play the original music in some of the, the better rooms on the better nights, it's not the same.
1: No, no, it, it, it seems to me as, as if in the 60s and 70s, all there was room for was Frank Sinatra tribute bands or something.
2: Yeah, yeah right, exactly. And I, I always say, you know, if, 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 the, uh, if the music fan atmosphere were the same back in the 60s and 70s when we had the phenomenal Renaissance of music that we had during that era uh we wouldn't even have a Grateful Dead yeah. or a Quicksilver messenger service or you know any number of even bigger bands well I don't know how you get bigger than the Grateful Dead but you know what I mean
1: yeah I know I I, I, I agree so how does that I mean you both do your own original music and you also you know do tribute to, or offshoot or bands of the, of the Dead. Uh, as a musician is is one as satisfying as the other for you
2: not really I mean I think I always am more uh, I feel more spiritually emotionally personally connected when I'm playing either songs that I've had something to do with creating or at least the more obscure covers that I can reinterpret and kind of make into my own, you know, that's that's more inspiring to me. Yeah. But the other thing is, I, and I don't know how much the Deadheads like this about me. In fact, it might have something to do with why I'm not a little bit more visible in that world these days, because I don't want to do a tribute band. And when I do Grateful Dead, I love the songs and I love it when the Grateful Dead do it Grateful Dead style. Yeah. But my music and my influences tend to be more Americana, blues, so you know, I I try to put a little blackness in there. I try to put a little funky groove in there. I try to make it my own somehow, even though it's Grateful Dead.
1: Yeah, so, oh, and 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 you were doing Rat Dog for a long time, and that wasn't just a Grateful Dead cover band. That that was
2: Far from it. That was Bobby's yeah. vision, you know, and, and one of his one of the interesting things about Bob's vision is he's always really respected uh jazz. And uh, and so, you know, when he brought Jeff Comente and both Dave Ellis and Kenny Brooks, the two sax players that we had, yeah. uh, when he brought them into the band, I think that his thinking was he wanted to bring uh, a strong voice and influence from the jazz world into the Grateful Dead idiom. And uh, after a couple of years of work, because at first it was kind of a, it was a tough fit. It didn't quite work to me anyway. Yeah. Um, but after we'd played together for a couple of years and started really being a band and learning each other's uh, musical twists and turns, uh, it did exactly that. You know, it turned into a band that was doing Grateful Dead music, but with these other influences and different kinds of interpretations. How did you originally connect with these people? Well, that's an odd story too, because I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, and and where? In, the, in San Francisco and, okay. and then Half Moon Bay. Uh, I went to Half Moon Bay High School, graduated from Half Moon Bay High, and then oh. a couple of years after high school, uh found myself uh, turning my panel truck into a home and uh, and moving to Gate 5 in Sausalito, and I think that's about when uh, Mr. Heyman and I first knew each other.
0: What, yes. what years are those?
2: Uh, I first moved to Gate 5 in 74, I guess. I was 19. Wow. We used and I to play, just uh, moved to Sausalito in 74. Oh well, so we we arrived at the same time. Pretty I mean, much. I remember playing. I remember playing this funky little club on Union Street called Generosity, mm-hmm. and I was technically too young to be in there, so they let me play as long as when the band took a break, I sat on the stage. <laughs> cool. Cool.
1: Cool. I bought Dan Hicks' old houseboat in about '74. Uh, oh, nice, nice. Uh, so yeah, we. We were, we were Sausalito mates. Uh, is there any more Rat Dog in the offing, or is that a defunct thing?
2: I, I think Rat Dog is done. I can't speak for Bobby, you know, but my, my impression of it is uh, I think he'll always want a Bob band, you know, uh, and now he has uh, the Wolf Brothers to fulfill that. And I don't think he's looking to have yet another one. I think he takes the Wolf Brothers pretty seriously and honors it. Uh, so I think that's kind of his current rat on.
0: Can you continue and tell us how from Half Moon Bay to Gate 5, you made your next connection uh, with the music industry in Marin, I guess?
2: Well, you know, I like I say, I was living in Half Moon Bay and we had a band down there that nobody would have ever heard of called Hotel Heart uh that was heavily influenced by the sons of champlin actually wow Um, sons of champlin were actually my favorite band from the from the hate ashbury milieu
0: loosen up naturally
2: yes one of my all-time favorite records uh and i've become friends through the years with bill and with terry haggerty and i feel so honored to to have friendships with these people that i used to worship you know um so what happened uh i left half moon bay because i didn't see it getting me anywhere you know uh, i was always going to be in some local coastside band and that was going to be the extent of it and i knew that the sons and the grateful dead and the fairfax street choir and all these bands were uh, up in marin and we used to cut school and and go and drop on mount tam and marin and whatnot so i had a pretty strong attraction to marin already uh so yeah i, I took my panel truck and i turned it into a home and I had a friend that was uh, renting a houseboat at gate five and they let me park there. Uh, so I just drove up there and the, the friend was this woman named Sarah Baker, a uh, wonderful singer, songwriter, piano player from, uh, from Tennessee uh, by way of New Mexico and uh, into the blues kind of R&B Americana world. Uh, and we met when I was still in Half Moon Bay and she invited me to come up and play with her when she's putting her band together. So that's, that's kind of what got me there. And then once I was in Marin, I just, it just felt like a, an old shoe. It was just a really comfortable fit. I needed to be there, you know. And how do you connect with the dead? Well, that's, secu- that's circuitous as hell. Uh, you know, I'd been a fan for all those years. Um, I lost them in about 76, I guess. I had listened from about 66 to about 76. Uh, And then I just started being interested in other kinds of music. I got into funk. I got into David Bowie stuff. I got into the whole sort of LA country rock thing. It was kind of like, yeah, well, what other other music is out there? Um, So I lost the Grateful Dead from 76 on uh, until 1998. And I had moved in the interim in 91, I guess, I had moved to LA because once again, I'd gotten to a point where I felt like the Bay Area and Marin County was, you know, I was only gonna go so far. And I wanted to be on bigger tours. I wanted to, you know, do session work for bigger records, all of that. And I thought, well, I need to be in either New York or LA and I'd rather be in LA. Uh, So I moved down there and I met John Molo down there. We did a bunch of session work together and some live dates. And in doing the live dates, I, I I don't remember the gig itself, but I remember doing a gig with John where the person we were playing with pulled out trucking and said, let's do this. And John and I were like, yeah, okay, we know that song. And we started doing it and John and I took it out. We started jamming mm-hmm. and we just looked at each other and started laughing because we obviously knew the Grateful Dead stuff. We knew the vibe. So uh, a couple of years after John and I met and played together, they're looking to put the band together post Jerry. And I was in kind of a dismal place. I was going through a bad breakup. I was really depressed with where my music life was at. I was very, very, well, I wasn't close to, I had decided I was going to leave the music business that I was tired of having to reinvent myself month to month. And, you know, I wanted a little job and life security uh, and right about the time I announced to the universe that I was fucking out of here, uh, <laughs> the universe uh, got back to me and said, no, don't be ridiculous. You've given your whole life to this. You're really good at it. How about instead of giving up, we hook you up with one of your very favorite childhood bands. And so I suddenly got a phone call uh, from John Molo saying, expect a phone call from Grateful Dead. Wow, and the very next phone call on my answering machine—remember those? Uh, was um, was from Man- well, Grateful Dead management. It was Cameron Sears saying, "Hey, we got your name from John Molo. Uh, wonder if you'd be interested in coming up and playing with the boys? Uh, we're thinking about putting a band together." Meant to be.
0: How wow, sweet. Yes,
2: yeah. nice. great really- story. And you know, the, the interesting thing about that too for me is that I always had done dismally at uh, auditions. Uh-huh. Uh, too much pressure. I wanted so badly to please whoever I was auditioning for that I usually didn't wind up being much of myself. Uh, I wound up being, you know, trying to be who I thought they wanted me to be. Sure. and And in so doing watered it all down to the point where I was kind of nothing and didn't usually get the gig. So in this instance, i and i use the word in quotes knew in advance i didn't have the gig there was no way i was going to get this gig so i went up there with the sense that fuck it i'm just going to go up because i get to play with those guys how fun is that going to be
1: right
2: and i went i went up and let go of any hope of having the gig and just had a (laughs) great time with them and i'm pretty sure that's what got me the gig god bless you yeah nice very sweet um on
0: wikipedia it mentions your fight with throat cancer and i've been all over your website the last 72 hours and this morning i checked out your youtube video on uh walk through fire oh yeah sure where you talk about your situation taking the guitar into the hospital and halfway through the song i'm getting choked up it's just over-the-top, sweet, beautiful, just great work. And uh, thank you for that. Well, thank uh, you. I kind of made my morning musically uh, checking that out. I was going, wow. Nice. And now we're going to meet this guy.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I have to say that that song, I think I probably said something to that effect in that clip he saw. Yeah. Uh, I don't really consider that I wrote that song. I mean, I wrote it down, um, but... I think of that song as having been a gift to me, something that came through me rather than from me. Uh, because when I was sitting in the hospital bed, I had no plans to write a song. I had I had come to the to the hospital knowing I was going to be there for a week, so I brought a guitar and a laptop and stuff like that to pass the time but I had no idea that within about 15 or 20 minutes of climbing into that hospital bed, I'd be going, uh, honey, can you hand me that guitar? And about five minutes later, Hey, can you hand me a pad and a paper, a pencil? I I don't know where it's coming from, but I'm getting this idea. And within 15 minutes, the song had written itself. I didn't think about it. I didn't massage it. It just, it just came. Wow.
0: Thank God. Yeah, exactly. And and, and, and cathartic therapeutic and just, just a, gorgeous tune
2: just one well, i've been really blessed because a lot of people have reached out to me and told me that uh you know and not just not just around the illness I, ha- I have spoken to several people with cancer that that was helpful too but also people going through divorces and all you know whatever the challenges are you know everybody has their own version of walking through the fire
0: uh, it's a beautiful metaphor for struggling and facing the unknown yeah it's just Amazing. Well, you knocked my socks
2: off today, so thank you. Well,
1: thank you, Mark. Speaking of thank you, I need to thank you for your stint in Rock Justice years ago.
2: Yeah, man. That's how we know each other. (laughs) Uh, And I always loved you because you always told me you liked my song, She's a Robot, my spoof song.
1: I love that. (laughs) I love love that. And uh, you were one of the the best defending guitarists ever.
2: Nice. Nice.
1: Uh are you are you still in
2: touch at all with Barney? Uh, not really. I mean, a little bit via Facebook. Uh, you know we we occasionally reach out to one another and threaten to get together, but it doesn't really seem to actually happen kind of like a lot of relationships in the world these days, it seems like. Uh, been in touch with Jesse Bradman a little bit. um I think of who else from then? uh. Pretty much nobody else, really, yeah.
1: Speaking of the the tribute cover sort of thing, are you at all in touch with Jeff Tilson?
2: No, again, Jeff and I were in touch a little bit via Facebook, and I've kept track of his career. I mean, he certainly did some pretty major things post-Rock Justice.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's interesting, uh, you know, you you look at the, the tribute bands, and I mean, he's now been... I mean, he was in Dackin and now Foreigner. He's been in Foreigner longer than, uh, you know, probably 20 years or something. And I think they're going to hang it up. But, but for the last five or so years, there hasn't been any original Foreigner guys in Foreigner.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm friends with Michael Bluestein, the keyboard player.
1: Right. So, uh, you know, you wonder what's the difference between the real band and a tribute band when there's no original guys, you know? Well,
2: when they start dropping off like flies, yeah, it's tough. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly
2: and we were more than
0: entering that era. Um, How's
2: how's your health right now? You look Uh, pretty strong. It depends on how you wanna look at it. I mean, uh, big picture, my health is pretty good. I'm I'm comfortable. Uh, I don't have any major problems, Um, but I'll be the first to admit I'm not very good at taking care of myself. Uh, I have a poor diet. I'm not very physically active um you know so i probably could be healthier than i am but i'm doing all right (laughs) i
0: I think i'm on the same program you are i had a kind of athletic existence had some knee replacement surgery and now i'm an old man and enjoying the uh
2: later years in life (laughs) i'm i'm kicking and i'm in i'm still in the kicking and screaming phase and don't (laughs) stop and keep playing of course
1: uh, speaking of keep playing, uh, you're you're in touch with somebody else I know indirectly from Rock Justice, uh, M- Michael Gaiman. Uh, I'm
2: quite a bit in touch with Michael Gaiman. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So you're doing Gilmore Project, and uh, I, I know I knew Michael because he worked for John Shear as the college booking agent back in the '80s when John Shear signed Rock Justice. Yeah. Sure uh and 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 never got to do it because he got indicted for antitrust for monopolizing rock and roll promoting in three states uh but michael has gone on to a interesting career as a booking agent tell me about the gilmore project because that's sort of outside of the dead uber
2: it's a it's a really cool band uh it's interesting for me because i don't actually have a real history with uh pink floyd music you know it's it's funny, when we started working up the uh, Dark Side of the Moon record, I thought, well, I've never even owned a copy of this record. I've never particularly been a, a Pink Floyd fan. Uh, but once we started working out the music, I realized I knew every single song on the record, even though I'd never owned a copy or or actively listened to it. It was just that influential. Um, it looks like we're going to run out of time in 10 minutes for some reason.
1: how that happened?
2: This is going too quickly. Uh, yeah right
1: um no we're we're cheapskates
2: and don't pay i i want to get my pink floyd story in but it's not going to happen oh yeah well so any anyway real quick uh michael put this band together you know there's there's lots and lots of pink floyd tribute bands and some of them are really incredible and kind of a big deal uh like the the brit floyd and aussie floyd bands are are, you know they, they they play the 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 uh the, uh, the sheds you know they play big venues and sell them out um, so Michael's idea was not to be a straight up tribute band to have that element in there but also to bring people like myself and Scott Guberman in because we come from improvisation world we come from Grateful Dead world yeah. and so he wanted to kind of do a mashup of authentic Grateful Dead I mean authentic Pink Floyd stuff but with some of the ethos of improvisation and interpretation that the Grateful Dead brought to the party, so that's kind of what the band is: is a is a a, a Floyd band that's not a tribute band. It's that's looking to reinterpret and find new spaces in the music.
1: Very, very cool. Uh, in the in the time we have left, I'm you as someone who's had a, an interesting career. Uh, if if you encounter, as I'm sure you do, young up and, you know, aspiring and up-and-coming musicians do you have any advice for them do you think they should get involved in, in the tribute scene just stick to their own original music or should they have hope that there'll be room for that
2: um you know that's a tough call I mean kind of like a parent you know uh I I would want everyone to be able to do well in the world you know in their with their lives uh in terms of how they get by, how they survive and whatnot. And and if I'm honest, it's gotten harder, if anything, to make a living as a musician. Most of the younger musicians that I know have no experience with what I did all my life, which was couch surf and be in a band and don't worry about the money, starve for your art, you know? Uh, Most of the musicians that I know these days have day jobs. Yeah. you know, and they, and they do their music around their day jobs as they can. And, you know, my, my family always used to say, music is a great avocation, but you need a vocation. And I used to say, fuck you, I'm doing this. Uh, <laughs> but um, nowadays I find myself maybe echoing my parents' sentiment a little bit, like go for it by all means. And if you really have the courage and the drive, Go for it, one hundred percent. Don't get the day job. Just dive in, you know. But know that if anything, it's gotten harder through the years, and it may involve a a lot of sacrifice uh, to take that route. But you know, on the other hand, if nobody takes that route, we're not going to have any more new music. We're not going to have a new Grateful Dead or a new Beatles or a new whatever. You know.
1: No, when when I look at, at partly the tribute scene and and the fact that kids don't buy records anymore the way we used to. I, I worry about about
2: where where music is going to come from. Agreed, completely agreed. Have you guys? And, heard and the fact that you you really can't make you know, and and I I don't want to be get off my lawn about this, you know, but uh, you know, the fact that you really can't make money, you can't monetize successfully, recorded music is a crime to me because uh music craft in the studio is a completely different art form than live music they say just play live just tour well that's fine but that's like saying oh well you want you were a painter and a sculpture or a sculptor well now just sculpt yeah. you know it's like what there are two different art forms man i love the studio as much as i love performing live you know and you gotta be i mean if i spend 20 30 grand making a record I got to at least be able to have some hope of making my money back, yeah. if not ever turning a profit.
1: Yeah. No, no I, I mean, having gotten into the internet at the beginning, and we all had great hopes about how wonderful it would be when all the world's information was interconnected, if you could have told me that just would have made hate more easy and it made it impossible to to sell, sell music and...
2: And blow the hell up out of the world of porn.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> The, it's it's not what what we were hoping for, in, you
2: know, in the early. No, decades. but is it ever? I mean, it seems like a lot of technological advances through the years. Uh, you know, you always do get the real developments, you get the the positive growth, and all of that kind of stuff, but you also get humans at their lowest denominator, and uh, and there seems to be more of that than there is of the higher aspiration part.
1: Yeah,
2: no, that, it's that, all yeah. about the money.
1: Sure, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, the the money and and the instant gratification. Yeah. Now, is is Wally Hyder still around? Yeah, they call it Hyde Street Studios now, but but uh, but the studio still exists. Uh, I think what they do now is they rent out the individual studio spaces uh, to individual artists and producers and stuff. Now, don't most artists
0: with all the new technology and Apple products um, are doing their own kind of recording studios, or
2: you know, it depends I, I mean, certainly we're we're talking in one right now, you know yeah. where I am is my studio space at my house., um, and a lot of us have that going on for sure. But uh, as good as you can be at that and as good as the product you can make with that might be, If, like me, you've had the experience of being in a really, really nice studio with a room that's really dialed in and a big selection of microphones in the mic closet and all kinds of wonderful pre's and, excuse me, compressors and all those toys, the sound quality and whatnot that you can get is a notch above. I mean, the, the, uh, the Pro Tools world is pretty amazing now and you can do pro tools at a very high resolution uh and plugins have gotten way better you know so I, I i can't even say if maybe i'm just being an old fart but uh but i like working in the analog world i like working with all that old gear i like working in a real studio space that sounds like god as opposed to how my living room sounds
0: yeah have you worked with uh steve barncard
2: no, I'm certainly aware of Stephen, but but no, we I don't think we've ever even met. Oh, we actually no, we have met, but uh, but we've never worked together.
0: In the '70s, after American Beauty, um, a friend of mine was trying to produce an album with him at Wally Heider's in San Francisco, and there were pretty kind of wild times, and there was too much white powder, and it never completely <laughs> got off the ground, but a lot of money was spent. And he was one of the more interesting people I'd crossed paths with. And what he, what I learned from him was, he could take all these tracks and turn it into something beautiful.
2: And isn't he, isn't he the one that uh, that did Crosby's "If Only I Could Remember My Name" record? I think so. Yeah, I tell you, somebody had turned me on to some outtakes from that record and some alternate ta- tracks and stuff, and it's fascinating to see how they layered that stuff together. I mean, I've heard some, some stuff that had been composited from multi-tracks down to a track that they were gonna add to the, the, the overall mix. And the stuff that they actually left in there that these days in Pro Tools land, you know, oh no, we'll tidy it up, fix it, perfect it. There's all this stuff that you would think would they would have had to have taken out to make it sound like anything. They left it all in and ended up with this amazing sounding record.
0: Yeah. Do you remember the song, Drop the Wine, Get That Girl? Spill
2: the wine. Sure, yeah.
0: yeah. Steve Barncard was um, mixing and they completed their session and they all dropped acid. Oh. And then the people just started riffing and he said, I'm going to record this, which was drop the wine get that girl nice and then he said you know this might be interesting he passed it on to some dj in the midwest who was giving it airplay some other station picked it up and then all of a sudden it was now in our body of music as a a legitimate song and it was just like off the top there and he had the mindset to uh make something out of it
2: yeah yeah.
1: in the less than a minute we have, I want to thank oh. you, Mark. Thank
2: both marks. Thank you. This is this was fun. I'm 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 actually bummed out. We're running out of time, but <laughs> totally. We, get we, it. we might have to do it again. Back, Don't please. get too bummed out.
1: Vinyl has come back. What's that? Vinyl has come back though.
2: Bono. Vinyl. Vinyl. Oh, vinyl.